Brought to you by Penguin. Hello, ho, ho. There you go. A festive greeting. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and welcome back to the Penguin Podcast, where we unwrap the world of writing. The air is filled with festive cheer. The tinsel is a twinkling. And I'm here with more holiday puns than you can shake a candy cane at. As the temperature drops and the days grow shorter, it can only mean one thing. It's time to snuggle up with your favourite authors as we revisit the highlights of the past year on the Penguin Podcast. It's been a challenge, as you can imagine, to narrow down the selection for this compilation because, let's face it, every episode is a gem. But we've chosen six of the best for our end-of-year roundup. If you want to hear any of the conversations in full, don't worry. Our podcast library is an absolute treasure trove waiting for you to explore. So, whether you're a long-time listener or just joining the Penguin podcast family, there's a sleighful of literary delights for you to discover. Just head to www.penguin.co.uk slash podcasts to find all our episodes. I began the year talking to Jane Fallon about her latest release, Just Got Real. Few authors have mastered the art of blending humour, suspense and biting wit as skillfully as Jane has. And it was great to be able to ask her why revenge is such a recurring theme in her work. You kind of want to stay in your wheelhouse, really, because I might have a brilliant idea for a completely different genre, but I think it would alienate people. Um, there was a thing when Get- Getting Rid of Matthew first came out, someone called it chick noir which I really liked because obviously as a female writer you get the chicklet where even if you're not writing about relationships Do you, are you comfortable with that well it hasn't got a k on the end so I kind of let it off if <laughs> you can kind of read it as chic chic noir <laughs> I mean no it's kind of annoying like no one saying all oh, men's books are lad whatever so it's a bit infantilizing but I liked the fact that I got my own little label that wasn't chicklet because you know I, I've seen it with it all other women writers that I know, they all get called chicklet if there's any kind of a relationship, even if it's just two friends doing something together. So I thought, okay, well, that's kind of my thing. My thing is chick noir. So I've sort of clung on to that so that I've got a thing, but it's a thing that I feel is my own unique little USP. And similarly with the revenge thing, more and more, um, you know, I, start, I started a few books ago. I remember there was a review that said, oh, the queen of revenge. And I thought, oh, I like that. That's That's my thing. Um, so I think as long as you're happy that you can make each book as individual, I think it's a bit like saying every thriller has a murder in it. Most of my books have revenge in them. It's my thing. It's what I do. But hopefully they're all very different. OK, so what is it about your own nature, your own personality that draws you towards revenge? I don't know. I think it's one of those feelings that's universal, the desire for it. But I also think it's a dreadful mistake. I don't think it's anything, you know, I've often fantasised in my head about what I would do to someone that's wronged me. I mean, what I can do now is I can put a nasty version of them in a book and it's a joy. But, you know, you think about it, but it's not a good, it's a terrible thing. It backfires on everybody, I think, that tries it. And it turns you into the kind of person I would never want to be. But I'm sort of fascinated by what would happen if we act on one of those really dark feelings that we have, what would that do to you as a person? How far would you go? I just find it an endlessly sort of fascinating subject, really. Do you need to be quite in control of everything? Yeah. Or, okay, (laughs) right, okay, Yeah. okay. Because revenge can spiral and does, right? Yeah. 
because things have unforeseen circumstances that come from these things and that's chaos yeah definitely because i think in people's heads they think oh you know i'll just do this one thing i'll write this nasty comment about her on twitter and that you know that'll teach her but then you get sucked in i think either you do it once and you think oh that was good i'll do it again or they fight back and then you think well i've got to go harder it always escalates it's not a healthy way to be at all i don't think um and i am a massive control freak about most things but i also know myself well enough that i know that it, uh, I just know it would all go horribly wrong. If I ever tried to take revenge on someone, it, it would be so much worse for me than it ever would be for them. So I kind of get it out of my system by writing about it. And being a producer, presumably, that is controlling all aspects of what is happening around you. I guess then there's not that much difference being an author. But I often speak to authors, Jane, who talk to me about it taking on a life of its own, even though you are ultimately in control of it, it takes you to directions you never thought you would go. Yeah, that's definitely true. And that's one of the joys, actually, I find of writing a first draft, because writing a first draft, as I'm pretty sure you know, it is, it's hard. It's hard and it's painful and you never quite know if you've made the right decisions. But actually what's lovely about it is it the characters do sort of start to come alive in your head and they do start to drive how the story is going to go. And you have to be happy to move away from your original plan. I think you have to go with where the story is kind of taking you, where it logically will go next. And I, that's what, for me, is one of the most exciting things is finding out the ways the story can completely change track from what you're imagining because of what you've already written. Does it get more difficult? Uh, yes and no. It's To a large extent, it gets easier in that I know that I can do it now. I know I can pull it off. I know, I always say this, but it's so true. I know that at a certain point in the book, approximately 40,000 to 60,000 words, I'll have a nervous breakdown and throw things around and cry a lot and say, this is rubbish. And I want to put it all in the bin. I, but now I know that's going to happen. And every time all my friends say to me, you know, you do this every time. And I'm like, but this time it's real. But in my head now, I know it's not, I know I can get through it. I know it's not the end of the world. If I can't get through it and I have to throw all that away and start something else, I know I can practically do it. It gets harder, I think, in the expectations become bigger. You know, you don't want to keep repeating yourself. I'm now, I'm writing quite quickly now. I'm writing, and at the beginning, I was very kind of, oh, yeah, I'll knock out another one in a year and a half. But the last sort of eight books, I've been writing a book a year. And although that really suits me, it also puts a lot of pressure on you to come up with an original idea. So that side of it gets a bit harder. But generally, I would say it does kind of get easier because it's the devil you know, you know. Recently, I, I heard um, someone talking about the fashion designer Virgil Abloh and described that he had a zero attachment to ideas. Therefore, once it wasn't working, he could just drop it without feeling any remorse or anything. Just, What's your attachment like to ideas? I'd love to have that one. That sounds great and really healthy, actually. <laughs> I'm not, I don't get really attached, but I do get a bit attached. And you, you mostly get attached, I think, because you're thinking, I, my brain has put all this work in already. Right. Can I really yes. throw that away? But actually, I learned on my second book, Got You Back, I wrote um, 30,000 words, which is like a third nearly of the book. And then I realised it really wasn't working. And I panicked. And I thought, I can't, it's not going to work. I've got to start a new book. So I junked what I'd written. It's the only time I've ever done it. But then when I came to write my next book, I got that out of the bin 
and I had time in, you know, and my, I was relaxed enough to rethink it, reform the, the idea. And that became my third book. So at that point I realized that actually nothing's ever wasted. If you, an idea is not working and you junk it, you can revisit it later on and come at it from a different angle. And so I've got much better at being not too attached. Just goes to show no effort is truly wasted. Julian Barnes is an author whose work resonates for its thoughtful exploration of the human experience. He joined me in February to talk about his latest novel, Elizabeth Finch, and to tell us how he was inspired by his friend and mentor, Anita Bruckner. And in a funny way, building up Elizabeth Finch, I started with Anita Bruckner's shoes and a certain sort of moral component to her. And then I put Elizabeth Finch in and she walked away in Anita Bruckner's shoes and going in the direction that she wanted to go in. You used an interesting word in front of friend there, which was controlled. What does that mean in the context of your friendship with Anita Bruckner? Oh, I can tell you very straightforwardly. I was her junior. And it's interesting we became friends because we met the year she won the Booker Prize and I didn't. And I could have been resentful, but I, I tell you why I wasn't, because about a week before the Booker Prize, and I didn't know her, I think I'd met her socially once, she dropped me a card and it said, I think you will win the Booker Prize, and you should. And I thought, what an astonishing thing to write, you know, a week before the great ceremony in the Guildhall. I thought, this is a most unusual woman. I can't think of I can't think of any man who would write that, and I can think of few women who would. Anyway, she did, and so when she won it, I sort of didn't really resent it. And we met, and then we would have lunch every so often. At first, it was about twice a year. Sometimes it was three times. She would always decide where we're having lunch. This is what I mean by controlling. She would always pay the bill. She would always be there before I arrived. She would usually be smoking a cigarette, and she would... At the beginning, she would have a glass of wine or a glass of champagne or something like that. And she liked going to stylish places. And then it was perfectly clear after approximately 70 minutes that that was it. We had an espresso and she called for the bill and we kissed one another goodbye. And in that 70 minutes, we had spent what in other, with other friends, other sort of more loosely textured friends, was like three hours of company. So... Uh, you know, I adored her, and, and she was obviously very fond of me. But I had no other... I think she came to dinner in my house once and lunch once, but on the whole, it was always out in a restaurant. And she was very witty. You see, this is the other side of Elizabeth Finch. You'd, you'd arrive for lunch, and she would say, so what have you got for me? <laughs> and you were immediately, you were there, you had a function, which was to tell her something entertaining or funny or witty or gossipy. She loved gossip. And we sort of went from there. And we talk about, you know, art, because she was a professor of art, and we talk about writing and we talk about people we knew. But she laid down the rules. She laid down all the rules. I didn't resent it at all. I thought, these are the terms and conditions for having a friendship with such a person. The only time I got it wrong, I was looking at a catalogue of the forthcoming season at the National Film Theatre, and there was a programme of the first moving pictures of Paris back in the sort of around about 1900, bit before, bit afterwards. And they were all short films. I mean, the first, the first film shown in Paris was of, 
it was filmed in a station and it was just the train arriving and the train was just coming towards people in the cinema and getting bigger and bigger and they all ran out there was panic they thought this was going to come through the screen it was so realistic they thought the train was going to come through the screen and just run over them so they all they all buggered off and there were i don't know something like it's a 90 minute program so there were maybe sort of 10 or 12 short films of Paris street life and that sort of thing. And I thought, Anita will be fascinated by this. So I rang her up and I started describing it as I have to you. And I got about a third of the way through and she said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I felt quite hurt, I have to tell you. <laughs> I, I didn't say, but Anita, you're interested in this. You're interested in France. You, you must love these films. It was just, you know, her social life was very ordered and going to the movies with a friend and his wife, who she'd never gone to the movies with before, was sort of just outside her thinking at that point. And I respected that, but I was I was hurt by it. I thought in longer term, in retrospect, I find it funny. Have you always been waiting for an opportunity to include an Anita Bruckner? Because what you've just described to me, those meetings with her, are an exact copy of what occurs in the book between Neil and Elizabeth Finch. And it's so extraordinary. Have you been waiting for the opportunity to include these details of meeting someone so controlling? No, I mean, it's not as if I... And I must stress, it's it's not a roman à clay. It's not a novel about Anita Brooke. It's a novel about someone who shares some of her traits and her quirks. And, I, and there are some things about Anita that I just... I mean, I just couldn't resist putting in straight from life. But uh, I didn't. obviously I didn't use the uh, will you come to the cinema with me thing. Um, no, that's true. But um, I suppose if you'd asked me in the, what was it, 30 years perhaps that I knew Anita, I would have said, no, why, why would I, you know, I wouldn't write about her. I, I mean, I admire her, I admire her novels. Um, and indeed, when she died, I wrote a piece about her. And maybe it was that that set me off in some way on wanting to make a sort of parallel fictional character out of her. You don't quite know what will set you off, fortunately. It would be awful if you knew what set you off to write a novel, if you knew in advance somehow, or if you knew certain things would set you off to write a novel. Then it would just be like painting by numbers, and it wouldn't be interesting. It's an amazing book, and if you haven't read it, do get yourself a copy. June saw us pitching a tent at Latitude Festival, where, among the music stages, Izzy Sutty spoke to Shaparat Kosandi about her new book, Scatterbrain, which explores her recent ADHD diagnosis. Appropriately enough for someone with a busy brain, Shaparat chose somewhere very peaceful for her first object. Somewhere where I was happy is a pear tree in a garden in Maidley Road in West London. I can tell you that because I don't live there anymore. So I used to live at, it was like this massive Victorian house that was divided into six flats and it, no one had attended to it for decades. We had to wear um, slippers in the house because it was rented, uh, rented flat and the carpets were so dirty you had to wear slippers. And, you know, if windows got broken, nobody mended them. The garden was clearly once beautiful, but no one had looked after it. And uh, my brother and I shared a room, so we were very, very close growing up. 
And we spent all our time in that garden and it had this old pear tree that we used to climb up. Whenever our parents were rowing, <laughs> we'd run downstairs, which is oh, I talk a lot about that as well with my very kind permission from my parents. But my brother and I used to run up the pear tree. We'd climb up the pear tree and sit there, take snacks and just sit there all day. And then um, when they sold the house and we had to move out, they did something dreadful. It had, an old, um, had a bomb shelter in the garden, underground bomb shelter. They concreted it over, made it mostly a car park, but the pear tree stayed. And then um, I was going through a really, really hor horrible time in my, my divorce. And my brother went to the house, took a picture of the pear tree and said, this is always there. Oh. Oh, yeah, so that's where I'm happy. Did you I think part of the crying is also perimenopause. <laughs> you know, this talk can be about whatever you want it to be. <laughs> Who's in perimenopause? Give us a cheer. <laughs> yeah, I think I am. Um, well, I don't mind. I love it. I, I often cry during this. I think it's great. It's great to cry. It's yeah. so good. And did you ever eat the pears? Were they part of the snacks? No, they were great. The pears were great. Big juicy pears and it had like four apple trees. And I took, when my son was born, this is going to sound really weird and definitely trespassing, I took him to meet the pear tree. <laughs> so yeah, it's still there because I also took my daughter. Don't tell anyone. I go into people's gardens. <laughs> I've got a little dream of buying that house back one day and restoring the garden to its former dilapidated state. Oh, I so hope that happens. I love that image of her taking her children to visit her tree. I hope you get to climb it again, Shappy. Dr Chris Van Tulliken hit the bestseller list this year with ultra-processed people, looking at the way a processed diet affects our bodies. But his second object was something a little less intellectual. His yellow toy cow, Teddy. Um, well, let's move on to your next object. This is something to treasure. This is my yellow cow, it is, yes. Teddy. So I, I've had yellow cow slightly older than me. He was given to me before I was born. In fact, Zand, he was given to Zand, but I liked yellow cow. Zand had a blue cow. We don't know what's happened to blue cow. Anyway, I kept yellow cow. I put yellow cow in because I still sleep with him every night. I feel like I'm a reluctant science communicator. There are a lot of people on the BBC who talk about science who are evangelists, who believe that science is an amazing way of understanding everything about the world. And there's someone who has a PhD in molecular biology and, and uses science. I find science a really limited way of understanding the world. And something about yellow cow represents this because I have some belief about yellow cow as being more than an inanimate object, that he has some property that I can't quite name, that's quite important to me. And I, I would be almost as upset today if I lost him as if I've had a child lose a teddy bear. And it's, it's grief, it's real grief. So he speaks to something, I guess, in my psyche where I feel that I always want to caveat all scientific discussions by saying, this is just a very limited tool for predicting a few very small things about the future. It doesn't help us understand anything about the world. And if we're going to understand food, the science won't help us with the inequality, the social context and the immorality of the way our food system works. I think the other thing that that brings to your work is a sense of fun. And the book is also very funny. 
that wouldn't be there if you didn't have this openness to... There's a kind of softness around the edges of what you do that makes what you say far more compelling than if it was just dry information. Perhaps a sense of fun about life. Or a sense of uncertainty. Yeah. I'm quite... I'm quite... The edges may be just slightly softened. Yeah. And it's a problem when you're communicating about this stuff because I think what a lot of people want is just... To, people say, like, tell me what to do. What should I do with my diet? Tell me, Chris. And I, I'm like, I, I've no idea what you should do. Here is some information and I, I can't tell you how to behave because you will, you will fail and it will be my fault or you'll succeed and it will be my success. I feel very unsure about exactly what to tell anyone to do. There aren't clear answers. And maybe Yellow Cow helps with all that. A lovely insight into Chris's brain there. If you haven't read Ultra Processed People, I heartily recommend it. It's one of the most talked about books of the year and for very good reasons. Jyoti Patel had a great year too. Her debut novel, The Things We Lost, was the Observer's best debut novel of 2023. It is a truly beautiful book. But Jyoti was inspired by something rather more prosaic for one of her objects. So I chose The Great Gig in the Sky by Pink Floyd because it was a song that I grew up hearing so much. My dad would blast it through the house, whether we were in Bangalore or London, wherever we were, I just remember this song being like the thread of like my childhood. But it was it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really listened to it. And it's a song that whenever I get stuck when I'm writing and I don't know how to articulate something or I don't know, I can't crystallize a feeling that I want to articulate. I listen to this song because for me, it is every emotion. It is life and death and joy and happiness and love and heartbreak. It is every emotion and every experience and a whole life lived in a song. And it's so much more than a song. It's like an experience, you know, it's, it's everything. And I think it's something that really unlocks me as a writer when I hit a wall or when I can't quite reach into what I need to get to when I need to write. So there are so many songs in the novel too, because music's such an important part of my life and an important part of what builds me. And I wanted to show how music builds these characters and makes them who they are. It was so hard for me to just pick one song, but I think that's the song that's been with me the longest and that continues to move me in the greatest way. Let's move on to a piece of architecture, something that reminds you of home, but not only a piece of architecture, but the fact that you mentioned the North Circular, which yeah. nobody, <laughs> nobody would, I think, attach to feelings of sentimentality or nostalgia. Most people are annoyed by the A406 on a daily basis, twice daily basis usually. Absolutely. And it actually features in the novel too. I mentioned Nick learning how to drive on the A406 because um, it's, it's got that special place in my heart that it's even been immortalised in my novel. But um, yeah, I chose the Wembley Stadium arc as this, this thing that just makes me, reminds me so much of home and because I think for so long I lived, you know, outside of London and I would drive home every weekend. And whether I've been abroad and I'm coming back in a cab or whether I'm literally driving back to London from living outside of it for so many years, the moment where I would feel this rush of God, I'm home was when I would see 
the Wembley Arc, this, the arc of the stadium, as I was, you know, turning that corner in the A406. And even now I live in North London when I go back to Northwest to visit my parents and my family and so many of my loved ones who are still around Wembley, Harrow, those parts of London which are in the book. When I see that arc, I just feel like I'm home. I feel like I'm safe. And it's almost like my shoulders just inch a little bit lower down. And I just feel that relaxed feeling that you feel when you're home. Um, and it's so strange because I know that that arc has got so much meaning for football fans and for so many different kinds of people. But for me, it just means a cup of chai. It means a cup of peppermint tea with my mom. It means like seeing all my my loved ones. No matter where I've lived, it's it's always signified home. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I, I lived in Dollis Hill for many years that part of Northwest London, Wilston Green and Dulles Hill, exactly. And we used to go to Harrow quite a lot for um, some very good, as you well know, Sri Lankan vegetarian restaurants in Harrow. Uh, it's a it's a great part of London, an amazingly buzzy part of London as well. It must have been quite interesting when you were in Norfolk. I mean, the juxtaposition between those two places. Yeah, it was, it was a huge, um, the only reason I went there really was for university. So I studied English with creative writing for my undergrad because the UEA there is so well known for creative writing. And then really I stayed is, yeah. and went back and did my master's on like the big creative writing course there. And basically as soon, even before I finished that master's, I was back in London. I was like, I'm going to do my undergrad, work for a couple of years. And as soon as I finished the master's, I was like, I'm done with this place. I'm going back home. But even when I lived there, I would I would come home every weekend because, and that's why, why I mentioned the A406, just because it is such a juxtaposition. And it's interesting because Norfolk has had so much time in, in literature. It's mentioned in so many novels, whether it's books set there or whether it's people going on long weekends there. But Wembley and Harrow and those parts of London haven't seen, they're either romanticised because of the school in Harrow, but real Harrow, Wembley, you know, driving on the A406, Friday, like all those roads that I know so well, I've never seen in, in books. And that's why I wanted to bring them into this novel too, because there's so many British Gujaratis and South Asians who live there. Um, and it's, I feel like it's just been a big part of becoming who I am, is, is Northwest London, my part of Northwest London. I don't think I'll ever quite look at the North Circular the same again. Spent many hours on that road. Anyway, David Mitchell scored a festive hit towards the end of the year with Unruly, a book that takes a comic look at the kings and queens of England. It's full of things you didn't know about the founding fathers and mothers of Britain, and David chose one of the most iconic weapons in English law as his first object. Yes, the, the arrow that may have been the way Harold Godwinson, King Harold of Hastings, died. Uh, that's my slightly virtual object, an 11th century arrow. The loss of that battle, that battle could really have gone either way. There was nothing inevitable about that. Harold was a very capable professional king. He had no real right to the throne, uh, but had seized it with some vigour and was accepted completely within England, which is rare for a fundamentally a usurper. He wasn't a usurper in some ways in that he claimed he'd been left the throne by Edward the Confessor, but William also claimed that. But he definitely had the support of the next rung down because they thought this is going to be the best, the most peaceful, the most stable way out. He's, he's got all the power. Let him be in charge. He seems quite professional and not too psycho, considering the age. And he'd done very well for the most of the year of 1066. He got himself crowned the day after Edward the Confessor's funeral. So he was, he was aware he had to move quickly. But 
things were stable. He'd got ready for William to invade. He had a large force dotted around the south coast. He was directing operations from the Isle of Wight, all ready to pounce on William and repel him immediately. But then the weather was bad, and so William didn't come over the summer. And then the troops are hanging around the south coast, and Harold says, well, I'm going to have to let them go home. Yes, he lets them go, and then he has to recall them. Yeah, and that obviously is a nightmare. He lets them go, and then he discovers there's been an invasion in the north from Harold Hardrada, the king of Norway, with Harold of Hastings' tricky brother Tostig. And they've invaded in the north, and Harold Hardrada was very good at fighting and had been a guard of the Byzantine emperors and basically lost very few battles. And so this is a big problem. And Harold Godwinson gets his army together, marches up to the north, defeats Harold Hardrada and Tosti, and then discovers that William has now finally turned up on the south coast and he has to turn round, march all the way down tiring even to think about. William's there on the south coast. Harold gets there with quite a big army, not what it would have been if William had invaded when expected, but positions this army in a good defensive position. William's got to get past them or he's screwed. And Harold says, so guys, we need to just stand here. Okay, they come, we hit them, we hit them, we hit them, but don't chase them. Unfortunately, his army gets a bit overexcited at one point when he thinks the Normans are in retreat and they start chasing them. The Normans turn around, kill a load of them. And this technique is used time after time. And that's basically why William won. If they'd stayed still on the ridge in their defensive formation, William probably couldn't have got past them on that day. And then every day later, Harold's position is stronger because the noblemen are coming in from the rest of England. So it could so easily have gone another way. And I feel sorry for it. Yeah, because actually it's not his fault. His men disobeyed him. His men disobeyed. Obviously, that's partly, you know, it's a managerial issue. If if people aren't motivated to do what they're told, who knows? But yes, it's basically really annoying. It's It's one of those you had one job scenarios. Your one job is do not run down the hill. And then they ran down the hill. And I think you say they sort of almost like they're playing a game where Hmm. the Normans are kind of going, catch me if you can, kind of retreating further back and then almost goading them to... Yeah, that's what they think happened. The first time there was, you know, genuinely a sort of mini rout in the Norman army because they thought William might have been killed. But then William hadn't been killed and so they turn round and and start slashing at the people who'd followed them. And this, they realise this is very effective and they manage to repeat this feint uh, several times and they're just grinding the Anglo-Saxon numbers down. And yeah, and then at some point, Harold gets killed, maybe by an arrow in the eye. People like those stories, don't they? People really like to have um, a picture in their heads of this grim death, an arrow in the eye. I don't know why that feels more compelling than just he died and we don't know how. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, I suppose it's memorable. Yeah. At school, it's memorable. And the, that, that little moment of gore and sort of thinking, I wouldn't like to be hit by an arrow, but where would you particularly not like to be hit by an arrow? Oh, the eye. That yes, be, it's like the worst. There's yeah. A, yeah what exactly. would you do if you had an arrow in your eye? Would you leave it there? Would you snap <laughs> it off? Would you try and pull it out? You know, would it get to your brain? Would you, you know, would you? And I think school children like reflecting on that. And then suddenly that bit of history will be with them forever until some someone annoyingly says, well, we don't know that he was killed with an arrow in the eye. And I always find that a slight shame. Yes, it's. I was thinking about GCSE history, which 
for me, mainly focused on the Industrial Revolution because of partly because of being in Derbyshire and, and medicine as well in the American West later. But anyway, I was thinking about how the things I remember are gross things mm. like bloodletting and the four humours and phlegm and trephining where you drill a hole in the back of the head to supposedly let evil spirits out. And it must be for exactly the same reason. It's like you're going, thank God I'm not having an operation with no anesthetic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, the medical... I mean, the history of medicine is funny because yes. it's basically, as far as I can tell, doing more harm than good until the middle of the 19th century. And there are a lot of things that are quite advanced before the middle of the... I mean, you've got the Industrial Revolution and steam engines, for example, but still, basically what the doctors are peddling is some nonsense that their predecessors made up. And this whole issue of bleeding, that they're all convinced that bleeding is, is, you know, that's the first thing you want to do, not take a couple of paracetamol, but bleed someone. And because they've been saying that for so long, to admit that that does more harm than good becomes too terrible to do. And so the bleeding happens for longer than it needed to do because they can't, people can't say, well, you're saying we've been doing harm for centuries and my father was doing harm. So no, no, let's just tell ourselves that the bleeding is probably still a good start. But no, there's never any reason to bleed people. Bleeding is bad. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's, you're getting rid of a thing that you really need. Yes, exactly. It's one of the <laughs> things that kills people. Were you like that too? Were you when... Because you, your love of history started young. Do you remember being fascinated by those gory bits? I know you love dates. It, it, <laughs> it, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I like the gore, but I do like the date. What I like... It's putting things in order. And what I wanted, always wanted to know is what happened before and what happened next. And I'm, I've never been so interested in, in getting deeper in, but I wanted to go broader. And that's the, you know, a lot of the frustration of history at school and at GCSE is that there seems to be an urge to specialise. <laughs> and specialising pre-GCSEs is quite early, you know, and, and I think what, it's fun then to, is to know the broader sweep, the story. Obviously, you have to say, well, it, there, it isn't a story. There's no received version. This is all just something that's been pieced together from sources and has been interpreted. And that's an important thing to know in the internet age more than any other. But also, the basics is pretty much agreed on. So why not learn the sequence of rulers and have that broad sense of you know, there was the Norman Conquest and then there was a bit of uh, trying to be in charge of France and then there was the wars of the Rose and then there was the Tudors. You can tell people that without betraying the, the nature of sources. Yes, and they're things we definitely know. Yes, yes, exactly. These are indisputable. So then within that you can use your imagination or other knowledge to furnish what you think happened. Yes. Yeah. And I think that the interpretation of sources, which I definitely had to do at GCSE quite a lot when I could have been <laughs> doing more general knowledge of other bits of history, the interpretation of sources is really a professional historian's job. It's not part of general knowledge. And I think quite a lot of people would like to have a bit more general knowledge of the past and the fun bits and the brutal bits. And so that phrases that refer to a bit of the past aren't a mystery to them. Do you still feel the same about, do you still like that, that rigorous element to it and, and going broad rather than deep? Or as you've got older, do you like now to kind of learn a bit more about specific periods? Well, I think I like to know basically why things changed. I'm fine with basically why. And I think that if you ask a historian a question, what they often want to say is, no, it's not that. 
And if you manage to ask them a question, they don't say, no, it's not that. What they usually say is, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. And at that point, I sort of feel, OK, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> if it's, if I, so I'm, I'm there or thereabouts. If you're looking for a last minute stocking filler, grab it now. It's hilarious and educational. Or as Jesse Armstrong put it, delightfully contrary and hilariously cantankerous. And that's it for this episode and for 2023. The Penguin Podcast will be back in January and we already have some amazing authors lined up for you. Don't forget to subscribe and then you'll never miss an episode. Think of it as our festive gift to you. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time.